Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, your tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. When 54-year-old Bobby Miller and her dog were found dead in their Guilford, New Hampshire home one November afternoon in 2010, it didn't take long for the public to point the finger at her former husband. The circumstances might be convincing, but over a decade later, no one has been arrested for Bobby's murder. Her family waits alongside so many others for closure in her unsolved homicide. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is the case of Roberta Bobby Miller on Dark Down East. Roberta Dion Miller, or Bobby to everyone who knew and loved her, was born and raised in the Manchester suburb of Bedford, New Hampshire. She was one of six children, five girls and a boy. Bobby's brother Ken told me that growing up in a house of girls meant the rules were pretty strict. But Bobby knew how to fly under the radar. My father was very strict and uh, had strict rules. And, you know, if he said be home by 10 o'clock at night, that meant be home by five minutes of 10, but not five past 10. And uh, so Bobby was real good about that. She was always home on time. And, uh, <laughs> and as a result, scored some brownie points with my father. And, um, but what my parents didn't know is that after they went to bed, Bobby would then sneak out the window and go back out. And, uh, we all got a big chuckle out of this because the window she would sneak out was the bathroom window that was right next to my parents' room. And I don't know how she did it. She never got caught and my parents never knew it until years later, we were having a family gathering and, um, we were talking about some of the stuff we did, and one of us said something about Bobby sneaking out the window, <laughs> and my parents were quite surprised to find that their little angel was doing something like that. She was a creative soul and an adventurous spirit. When Bobby wasn't hiking with her rescue dog, a yellow lab named Sport, she was creating beautiful works of stained glass art. She was also a loving mother to her son Jonathan and daughter Jennifer. Although they were all grown up and out of the house, Bobby would do anything for those kids. Bobby had spent much of her life as a stay-at-home mom, while her husband, Gary Miller, started up a few successful car dealerships in New Hampshire and Maine. She supported Gary through the ups and downs of owning a business and even worked at the dealerships alongside him on occasion. They were a team. However, around their 25th anniversary, Gary and Bobby's marriage began to crumble. 
they filed for divorce in 2007. Well, it, it was a very bitter divorce. Um, they were pretty well off financially. And, uh, of course, that just causes problems uh, when you're trying to split things up, I would say. It would be a tumultuous, multi-year process, but the final divorce decree in August of 2010 was like a reset button for Bobby. They had been divorced for a couple of months, and she seemed to be um, moving on pretty well. You know, she had moved out of the house that they had lived in. Um, They were selling, the house was for sale, but she had bought a new home in Guilford and uh, was settling in, seemed to be very happy there and was ready to move on with the next chapter of her life. Separating from Gary unraveled the only life she'd known. Now, she was single again at 54 years old, but Bobby was finding her footing. She'd lived in Wolfboro, New Hampshire with Gary and the kids for nearly as long as they'd been married. But soon after the divorce was finalized, Bobby bought herself a house in Guilford, about 35 minutes away. It was a modest, single-story, ranch-style home with a garage that faced the Pheasant Ridge Country Club on a quiet, rural road. In the early fall of 2010, she started taking classes at Granite State College in pursuit of her business degree. And she was slowly turning her new house into a true home, with plans to convert the garage into a studio for her stained-glass projects. Bea Lewis reports for the Concord Monitor that Bobby's daughter Jennifer talked to her mother sometime over the weekend of October 30th, 2010. During that phone call, Bobby was all abuzz about another house project. She wanted to build flower boxes to hang on the front of the house under the living room window. She thought it would brighten the whole place up. On Sunday that weekend, Bobby talked to her mother Madeline on the phone and she said she was heading to the store to get everything she needed for the window box project that afternoon. According to reporting by Todd Feathers for the Union Leader, Bobby was last seen that day buying building supplies at a nearby hardware store. But Bobby would never get the chance to finish her project. That same night, the home where she was building her new life would soon become the scene of Bobby's death. On the afternoon of Monday, November 1st, 2010, a 911 call requested help at 123 Country Club Road in Guilford. Police responded to the address by 4.30 p.m., and soon the whole road was shut down. Inside the house, they found Bobby Miller's lifeless body on the kitchen floor. Investigators quickly realized that they were dealing with a homicide. Early on, I mean, they really didn't say anything to us. They were very tight-lipped. They did tell me the circumstances of how Bobby was killed. Um, She was in her kitchen, and she had been working on some... uh, She was actually building some window boxes, so she was going in and out of the house to her garage doing some stuff. And uh, it was Halloween evening, and... um, she was shot twice. She was, she was wearing a hoodie, and she was shot in the face and throat area um, the first time. And I was told that the hood captured some of the blast, and then she fell on the floor and was shot again in the back of the head. Bobby's dog, Sport, was found dead in the house too, also a victim of apparent gunshot wounds. There's little information about what police learned in those first few days after Bobby and Sport were discovered. 
We know that Bobby and her dog were shot inside her home, and there were no signs of forced entry. And it had been a little ambiguous at first, but Paula Tracy reports in the Union Leader that investigators narrowed down the time of the murder to between 4 p.m. on October 31, 2010, and 5 p.m. on November 1st, around the time she was found. Investigators were in the process of obtaining Bobby's phone records and expected results from forensic testing on evidence pulled from her house. But what that evidence was, I don't know. Many of Bobby's friends and family were questioned over the course of a week, but Assistant Attorney General Benjamin Agati wouldn't say if investigators had uncovered any clue as to who might be responsible for Bobby's murder yet. He told Catherine Marchaki of the Union Leader, quote, I can't say we have some specific suspects or persons of interest. We have a lot of people we need to talk to, end quote. But it doesn't take a seasoned detective to guess at who was at the top of the list for questioning. You know the old true crime trope? The husband did it, or in this case, the ex-husband. Bobby and Gary Miller's volatile divorce was a big, bright red flag. In fact, Bobby and Gary were due back in court on yet another divorce-related issue the very same week she was killed. So let's talk about the ex-husband. Gary Miller was a car dealer and once owned a number of dealerships, including Miller Chevrolet in Wolfboro and Miller Ford in Sanford, Maine. According to reporting by Harrison Haas in the New Hampshire Union Leader, Bobby and Gary filed for divorce on September 19, 2007, citing irreconcilable differences, which I'll get to later. But the divorce was not granted until three years later, on August 13, 2010. And even though it was finalized, Gary and Bobby were still in court over Bobby's alleged failure to comply with the divorce order. Roger Amston reports for the union leader that, as part of the divorce decree, Bobby was ordered to pay close to $75,000 in her share of taxes due, but Gary alleged that she failed to pay up. In addition to the seventy-five dollars in taxes, Gary wanted Bobby to pay for roughly $6,100 in legal fees that were, as he argued, the direct result of Bobby's litigation tactics. Basically, if she hadn't dragged this out, he wouldn't have to pay a lawyer, and so now it's on her to cover the costs. The week of her murder, that Thursday, November 4th, Bobby was due to face a contempt of court hearing in Carroll County Superior Court, and she intended to represent herself for the proceedings. She'd filed a response to the motion a few weeks earlier, claiming that she didn't pay her share of the taxes because she simply didn't have the money. But Gary's attorney, James Ogerchuk, challenged that claim, alleging in another filing that Bobby had somehow squandered upwards of a million dollars as the divorce dragged on. Gary's attorney argued that Bobby was intentionally dragging out the proceedings, running up Gary's legal fees, and trying to put Gary through an emotional and financial ringer. Gary's attorney wrote in the contempt of court motion, quote, of the $928,051 that she has received over the course of this divorce, she has refused to itemize anything more than $100,000 in legal fees and $110,000 in personal taxes, totaling $210,000. This leaves over $718,000 left unaccounted for by Ms. Miller, end quote. But in her response to the motion, Bobby wrote, quote, 
The funds Mr. Ogerchuk refers to in his contempt motion are assets distributed to both Gary and I over the last three and a half years. Gary's funds, I am sure, have gone to the same place mine has. Taxes due to his Sanford Ford dealership business, over $100,000 in lawyer fees, over $110,000 in personal taxes on these funds, mortgages, real estate taxes, college tuition for my son and I, lawsuits on marital home from the town of Wolfboro, two tractor repairs to maintain marital home and other properties, car payments, health insurance and bills, along with living expenses, while I have been unemployed for almost a year. Yes, I have no counsel. I have spent over $100,000 on this divorce to date, which is overwhelming. I have no more funds to pay outrageous costs to lawyers who prolong this agreed-upon settlement. I am unemployed with no income, no alimony, no support, 54 years old with a high school education, now attending college full-time to try and support myself. I am living on $500 a month in the most disastrous economic times in decades, end quote. These filings are just a glimpse into what the three years of their divorce must have been like. The back and forth over money and assets and real estate, racking up billable hours with expensive attorneys, and separating two lives that had been interwoven for almost three decades. An acrimonious divorce sure sounds like the foundation of a convincing motive, right? Well, there's something else I haven't even told you about yet. Something that happened a few days before Bobby was killed. Depending on what you think is true, it might make the motive even stronger. Gary and Bobby had once owned a camp together just over the New Hampshire border in Acton, Maine. It was a cozy three-season cottage on Grady's Lake, and Gary had bought out Bobby's interest in the property as part of the divorce settlement. Just two days before Bobby's murder, that cottage in Maine burned to the ground. According to reporting in the Laconia Daily Sun, the Acton Fire Department received a call of an active fire at 111 Katy Lane around 9.30 on Friday, October 29. It took nearly five hours to extinguish the blaze, but when it was finally out at 2.30 a.m., the one-story cottage was a total loss. When the Maine State Fire Marshal's office began their full investigation in the morning, they found that a flammable liquid had been poured onto the exterior of the cottage. It was an act of arson. Let me run you through a theory, if you haven't already assembled a similar one in your head. Hypothetically speaking, is it possible that Bobby, bitter about the divorce and frustrated by the ongoing financial and emotional toll it was taking on her, went to the cabin she once shared with her ex-husband, doused it with some sort of accelerant, and watched as the match she tossed ignited the entire thing into a destructive blaze? And then, hypothetically, when Gary finds his lakeside cabin in smoldering rubble, he goes to find his ex-wife and kills her in retaliation, putting an end to their drawn-out legal battles. Hypothetically, that whole scenario is possible. It's a theory, though not necessarily one the investigation was considering. Police hadn't said either way. According to Harrison Haas's reporting for the Concord Monitor, Assistant AG Benjamin Agati said that authorities hadn't conclusively determined whether the fire at the cottage in Acton and Bobby's murder were connected, but they hadn't ruled it out either. The arson case was ongoing in Maine as the homicide probe continued in New Hampshire. 
Ken and the rest of Bobby's immediate family remained hopeful that investigators would be able to solve this case quickly. But an entire year passed, and no arrests were made. Now, in the beginning, of course, I mean, we'd never been through anything like this. We were all in shock. They deposed all of the family members, you know, they asked us a bunch of questions about Bobby and her children and her ex-husband and whatnot. But, of course, we figured that they were going to get to the bottom of this. I mean, you watch these TV shows, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's a joke. It's, it's not like television at all. After a year, the confidence that Ken and Bobby's family once had in investigators was waning. I mean, we were probably a year into it when we realized that, you know, there were problems. We would meet with the detectives and we would have a whole list of questions. We would email these questions to the detective and they'd set up a meeting with the AG so that um, we could go in and speak with them and see what kind of questions they could answer. And basically, they, they never answered any questions. It was always, we can't tell you that, we can't tell you that, we can't tell you that. It was a, like a broken record. We basically didn't get any answers. The only recourse Bobby's family felt like they had at the time was to keep her case in the public eye. They held a press conference ahead of the one-year anniversary in 2011. Ken, their mother Madeline, and Bobby's daughter Jennifer gathered with other family members at Mount Major State Park in Alton. It was one of Bobby's favorite places for a hike with sport, and where her family had scattered both of their ashes a year earlier. During the press conference, Jennifer announced that their family was offering a $50,000 reward for information, leading to the arrest and prosecution of the person or people responsible for her mother's murder. They also announced the launch of bobbyssoup.com a website once dedicated to raising awareness and sharing information about Bobby and her case. The site got its name from Bobby's favorite spinach soup that she asked her mother to make every year for her birthday. There were scans of the handwritten recipe for the soup on the website. Though the website is no longer active, I was able to access it through the internet archive, so I'll share the scans with you at darkdowneast.com. But beyond the soup recipe, the website also included a statement from Bobby's family. It reads in part, quote, This violent act, which we believe was both personal and planned, remains unsolved with minimal leads. Although the local and state police are working to solve her murder, resources dedicated specifically to Bobby's case are extremely limited. It continues, Without enough manpower devoted to her case, it's unlikely her killer will be brought to justice without our help and yours, end quote. Bobby's family urged those with information to come forward, especially anyone who may have spoken to Bobby between 4 p.m. that Sunday, October 31st, and 5 o'clock on Monday, November 1st, 2010. The press conference concluded with bowls of Bobby's favorite spinach soup handed out to reporters and other attendees. I asked Ken what he was thinking at that point, what theories he was weighing in his head at the time. Because when investigators aren't answering your questions, you're going to try to fill in the blanks and guess at possible scenarios yourself, right? Even a year in, and with no confirmation one way or another, every time Bobby's murder is mentioned in the media, there comes with it a summary of her messy divorce from Gary Miller. So was Ken thinking what everyone else was thinking? As human beings, you know, if 
two people were fighting and one of them got hurt, well, of course, you're going to think it was the person they were fighting with that did it. That, that's a natural knee-jerk reaction. And, uh, of course, we thought that. You know, in the beginning, we were, we were all in shock. Of course, we thought that. But as time goes on and you digest things and you learn a little bit more, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, you know, that's not what happened at all. We're about to flip this entire case on its head. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten, moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com. Of course, in the beginning, you know, the family, you know, of course you look at the ex-husband. That's, it's just normal. That's what you do. But it didn't take us too long to figure out it, it wasn't Gary. He had nothing to do with it. He was very, very cooperative with the police, has really worked hard with me and my family trying to solve this since that day. Gary Miller has never been publicly named a suspect in Bobby's murder. Investigators also haven't said in so many words that Gary isn't a suspect. But as far as Ken is concerned, Gary has proven to him and other members of Bobby's family that he is just as shocked and shaken by Bobby's murder as anyone else. And as Ken said, Gary has cooperated with the investigation since day one as far as he knows. But there was someone else that Ken claims wasn't as helpful when police came knocking. Let's talk about her son for a minute. Bobby's son, Jonathan Miller. Bobby and John were very, very close. It's like they never cut the umbilical cord. Bobby would do anything for either of her children. But Ken tells me she was especially protective of Jonathan, even when he was getting himself into trouble. According to reporting by the Laconia Daily Sun, Jonathan had several run-ins with the law in his late teens and early 20s. In 2005, when he was 18 years old, Jonathan was indicted on two Class B felony counts of burglary for breaking into a sandwich shop and a paint store in Wolfboro. In 2007, he pleaded guilty to four counts of burglary. I can't tell the length of his sentence or how much time Jonathan actually served on those charges, There's just a one-off line in a Laconia Daily Sun article about how his sentences were deferred for a period of time. Jonathan also had multiple traffic violations, a reckless driving conviction, and he had been incarcerated with the Carroll County Department of Corrections on three separate occasions at the time. 
one while awaiting trial for the burglary charges, one for disobeying a police officer, and a five-day stint for a probation violation and simple assault. John was constantly in trouble. From the time he was eight years old, he was always in trouble. And I think that Bobby and Gary did not agree on parenting. And I think that's what led to the divorce. Ken believes it's possible that the irreconcilable differences cited in their divorce included a difference in opinion on what to do about Jonathan. With Bobby, you know, we as the family, we we never said anything bad about John. Uh, we knew that if we said anything about John, we were crossing a line. She would protect him to the very end. Jonathan was 23 years old when his mother was murdered. He lived nearby in a house that he bought with money Bobby had loaned him. And though it wouldn't be reported until years later, it was Jonathan who found Bobby dead in her kitchen that day and called 911. Ken claims that Jonathan hasn't participated in the family's efforts to find answers in Bobby's death. Notably, he did not attend the press conference on the one-year anniversary of her murder. It turns out that a few weeks before that gathering in his mother's honor, Jonathan was arrested on charges of being a felon in possession of a firearm. The Laconia Daily Sun reports that Guilford police and a New Hampshire state trooper obtained a search warrant for Jonathan's home and vehicles following a tip that he was in possession of a firearm. During the search, police recovered a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol with magazines and ammunition. Since he had a felony conviction to his name, Jonathan wasn't legally permitted to have a gun, and so Guilford police arrested him on September 1, 2011. Police quickly squashed the speculation that Jonathan's firearm possession was somehow connected to his mother's murder. A statement by Guilford police following his arrest reads in part, quote, This investigation is separate from any other incident that the Guilford police has been involved with up to this point, end quote. At the time, investigators hadn't released any details about the kind of firearm used in Bobby's murder. But more details about how and when Jonathan obtained the gun more or less cleared up that it wasn't the murder weapon. According to court filings obtained by the Laconia Daily Sun, Jonathan bought the 45 caliber Glock handgun on or about August 11, 2011, from a former Gilmanton police sergeant named Dennis Rector. Dennis had never met Jonathan before, and he didn't know anything about him, until a friend told Dennis that Jonathan's mother had been murdered the previous year, and he might be a felon. So Dennis called Guilford police to report the gun sale, and a few days later, Jonathan was arrested. Before Jonathan went to trial on those possession charges the following year, Assistant County Attorney Stacy Kalin wanted any details about Bobby's murder excluded from the testimony. She believed it would risk unfair prejudice and possibly mislead or confuse the jury. But Jonathan's lawyer actually wanted the jury to hear about Bobby's murder. Jonathan's defense appeared to be that since his mother was killed, he was in fear for his life, and he bought the gun to protect himself. Attorney Daniel Deutsch argued in response to the motion, quote, While the defendant's purpose in acquiring a firearm for protection is not in itself a defense to the felon in possession charge, testimony concerning that purpose is appropriate in this case, end quote. 
Before it ever got to the point of testimony, though, Jonathan agreed to a capped plea deal of one to three years with possible work release. Now, there was one line from the assistant county attorney's motion that really sticks out to me. Kalen writes, quote, The murder remains unsolved. Upon information and belief, the defendant, Jonathan Miller, may have been, at least at one time, a suspect in the murder investigation, end quote. Upon information and belief is a legal turn of phrase that basically means it's not a known fact, but they either heard the information somewhere or suspect it to be true. And to be clear, investigators have never said if Jonathan is a person of interest or suspect in his mother's murder. Yes, Jonathan had a criminal history. He was convicted of that firearm possession charge. What could possibly be the motive for Jonathan to kill the woman who birthed him and who would do anything for him? In Ken's view, the murder was about money, but not Gary and Bobby's fights over finances in divorce court. He thinks Jonathan had a lot to gain from his mother's death. Well, he got his house paid off free and clear. Bobby had just bought him a house and upon her death, he got paid off for that. So he got that free and clear. We believe there was a bunch of cash missing from her house. And also, Bobby and Gary had annuity funds that came to fruition shortly after her death. Her share was $750,000, and John got to split that with his sister. Sounds like motive to me. Of course, that's just one man's opinion. Around the same time as Jonathan's conviction in July of 2012, the new owners of Bobby's home in Guilford were out doing yard work when they came across a spent shotgun shell. Bea Lewis reports in the Concord Monitor that the homeowner called police to report the finding and investigators came out to photograph and collect the plastic shell. With permission from the owners, police then continued searching the property around the house. Despite the discovery, Ken Dion said at the time that he hadn't heard of any updates in the case and it was unclear whether the shell casing was determined to be related to Bobby's murder. Again, police didn't say either way. At that point, it had been almost two years since Bobby and Sport were murdered by an unknown killer. Though investigators still hadn't made any arrests, Assistant AG Benjamin Agati insisted that it was not a cold case, and the investigation was following a number of possible leads. According to reporting by Dan Dufort in The Union Leader, when asked if Gary Miller was a suspect, Agati responded, quote, I can't specifically say anyone is a suspect at this point in the investigation. We're hoping that with the passage of time and with relationships changing, someone will feel that now they can come forward with more information, end quote. Meanwhile, Bobby's family was able to increase the reward for information to $53,000 thanks to donations and they were planning another memorial hike up Mount Major on November 3rd, 2012. Dogs and their humans were invited to join. Ken and Bobby's family waited for these public awareness efforts to pay off, for police to get a tip that put an end to their waiting, and for investigators to answer their questions. But none of it happened. Two more years passed, and in 2014, investigators released more information about Bobby's murder 
including details of the murder weapon and something they found in Bobby's house that day. As the fourth anniversary approached in 2014, Bobby's death certificate revealed previously undisclosed details about her murder. It lists her date of death as October 31st and states that she died almost instantaneously from a shotgun blast to her head and neck with perforations to her skull, brain, carotid artery, and lungs. The Laconia Daily Sun reports that police confirmed the same shotgun was used to kill her dog. It was the first time any details about the murder weapon were made public. So it makes those shells found by the new homeowners seem extremely relevant now. The AG's office also disclosed that investigators had found $26,000 in cash in an undisclosed location, presumably at Bobby's house, but said that the cash did not appear to be related to the murder. We know she had a lot of cash in the house. We know what they found for cash. We don't know what they didn't find. In other words, if Bobby had 26 grand in her house, it's possible she actually had even more than that. But how would anyone know it was missing? The new public information generated a few blips of media coverage, but it didn't change anything. There were still no arrests or answers. By 2015, a whole five years since they'd lost their mother, sister, and daughter, Bobby's family decided to try a new approach to generate attention and information in her still unsolved case. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom, an official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The large billboard posted at the corner of Hatch Corner Road and Route 104 in Meredith, New Hampshire, was unmissable. The headline text seemed to shout at passing motorists. It read, Who killed my daughter? Below it was a color photo of Bobby posing with sport at the summit of a mountain, with the $53,000 reward for information printed in bold black text against a bright yellow background. Ken spoke to Bea Lewis of the Concord Monitor at the time of the billboard's unveiling and said that he knew investigators were still actively working on her case, but they could only do so much with limited resources. Ken felt the only hope for his sister's case reaching a conclusion was with the help of the public and their family's efforts to keep her name out there. The billboard stood in place with the same message for years. But in the summer of 2018, 
it was replaced with a mysterious new sign. I'm going to say a controversial billboard showed up for a few days. And that billboard basically said I was murdered. It had a picture of my sister on it. Said I was murdered. Why won't my son take a polygraph with the New Hampshire State Police? That billboard was up for a few days. And I received a phone call from the billboard company telling me that that billboard had to come down. They asked me if I put that billboard up. I said, I have no idea how that billboard got there, but I liked it. And they were upset. They said, you got to take that billboard down because we got a phone call from the police and John Miller is complaining and that billboard has to come down. The apparently unauthorized sign was swiftly removed and replaced with the original billboard. According to Todd Feather's reporting in The Union Leader, no one would claim responsibility for the accusatory signage. But Jonathan Miller had an idea who did it. Jonathan said his uncle, Ken, had been pointing the finger at him for Bobby's death for years. He said in the previous year, he'd even sent Ken a cease and desist letter demanding he stop accusing him of the murder. He mentioned a possible lawsuit against Ken for the billboard, but he couldn't prove his uncle did it. Ken would not confirm for me how the billboard got there either. The billboard claimed that Jonathan hasn't taken a polygraph test as part of the investigation, but Jonathan has said he did take one at his lawyer's office at some point and didn't think it was necessary to take one at the police station. So I'll say it once again. Jonathan Miller has never been identified as a suspect in Bobby Miller's murder, nor has he been charged with any crimes in relation to her death. No one has. Her case remains unsolved to this day. In the last 14 plus years, Bobby's case has been shuffled from detective to detective, and it was eventually transferred to the cold case unit. Though he and his family have had meetings with investigators throughout the years, as recently as spring of 2023, Ken feels like they're being brushed aside and that cold cases aren't being prioritized or receiving the funding and staffing they need to reach a point of closure. We had an eye-opening conversation about the issues he and other surviving family members are dealing with when it comes to getting answers for their loved ones' cases in New Hampshire. Ken has become a voice not only for Bobby, but for other New Hampshire families too. In 2019, he spoke in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee in support of Senate Bill 130, which would add two more attorneys to the cold case unit. There was only one at the time. State police were also asking for that bill to be amended to add more full-time investigators to the unit too. The bill was approved in February of 2019, adding two new detectives and two attorneys to the cold case unit. But Ken says even those officials supposed to be dedicated to cold cases are getting pulled off to work on other current cases. The gloves are off. I'm very frustrated with the state of New Hampshire. All the other cold case family victims, families out there, they they all feel the same way that my family does. It's all smoke and mirrors. They, They tell you and the public that you're doing certain things, but they are not. And the bottom line is there's no funding. There's no manpower. There's no funding. Several families of New Hampshire's unsolved case victims, including Ken, gathered for a rally in Concord, New Hampshire during the summer of 2023 and requested an audience with Attorney General John Formella. They were frustrated by their shared experience. They felt forgotten 
And the rally was their way of demanding accountability for the lack of communication and progress in their loved ones' cases. A.G. Fermella did not attend and instead issued a statement, saying in part, quote, continuing to actively engage privately and are offering our assurance that attention is truly being given to these cases. The statement goes on to say, The Attorney General remains ready and willing to have one-on-one or small group conversations with impacted loved ones, end quote. My sister's case, even though we've been told many times it's a solvable case, it will never be solved. You can't solve it if you don't work on it. There is nobody working on her case, and they're not working on anybody else's case. A.G. Ben Agati has said that it's not like Bobby's case was just shelved. According to Tim Callery's reporting for WMUR, A.G. Agati said that as of November 2022, they'd reviewed the forensic evidence in Bobby's case numerous times to see if updated technology could be used to uncover new information in the case. But they didn't have any updates to report on that front. With an unsolved homicide, the unknowns far outweigh the facts. We're left guessing at some reasonable explanation for such a vicious and senseless crime. We sit here speculating on means, motive, and opportunity with only fuzzy circumstances to work with. In the case of Bobby Miller, there's the long-running theory that we've talked about. The ex-husband did it. It goes something like, Gary and Bobby's marriage ended in a nasty divorce, so Gary put an end to their drawn-out legal battles and shot Bobby and her dog. And then add in the fire at Gary's cottage in Maine, the arson is still under investigation, by the way, and if you believe Bobby could have been the one to light the fire, that's even more motive for Gary. Could it be that simple? If there's one thing I've learned in this line of work, it's that nothing is ever really that simple. Ken insists Gary Miller had nothing to do with Bobby's murder. Ken and Gary remain in contact, and they've even teamed up to get answers themselves. Yeah, we, we talk constantly. We talk very, very often. We're always strategizing about how to solve this. We're always coming up with new questions for the detectives, which we never get answers to. And we're always looking for new leads, trying to interview people ourselves, and we've worked very hard on this, and, and we'll continue to do so. As far as Ken's suggestion that Jonathan Miller could have killed his own mother, there's no publicly disclosed evidence that Jonathan had anything to do with her death. If Jonathan really did get that gun back in 2011 because he was in fear for his life while his mother's killer was still out there somewhere, the possibility remains that the person continues to walk free even now. I was unable to reach Jonathan for this episode myself, but Todd Feathers reports for the New Hampshire Union leader that when asked if he killed his mom, Jonathan responded, no, and then added, quote, I was always a mama's boy, and I always will be, end quote. If you have information about the 2010 unsolved homicide of Roberta Bobby Miller, please contact the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or email coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. You can also leave a tip via the link in the show description. There is a $55,000 reward for information 
leading to the arrest and conviction of Bobby Miller's killer. Thank you for listening to Dark Down East. You can find all source material for this case at darkdowneast.com. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at darkdowneast. This platform is for the families and friends who have lost their loved ones and for those who are still searching for answers. I'm not about to let those names or their stories get lost with time. I'm Kylie Lowe, and this is Dark Down East. Dark Down East is a production of Kylie Media and Audio Chuck. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Napa.